the good news is, is that no matter the family structure you come from, no matter the uh, situation you're in, God's grace exceeds our brokenness. And God used this family in mighty ways to bring the Messiah. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock. Hello, students, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 42. Genesis 42, we're going to spend... Uh, Nearing the conclusion of our study in Jacob and Joseph in Genesis, we'll, Lord willing, spend one more week, and then most of you have received the uh, new study in Mark, which, Lord willing, will begin um, following next week's conclusion uh, in the book of Genesis. Today, we're going to look at how God used, positioned, and used Joseph to really reconcile his estranged brothers. This is the story of a highly dysfunctional family, as most of you know. Uh, Jacob was not really a model parent or a model husband in many ways. Four wives uh, married within uh, you know, a very short period of time, probably not a good idea. But the good news is, is that no matter the family structure you come from, no matter the uh, situation you're in, God's grace exceeds our brokenness. And God used this family in mighty ways to bring the Messiah so when you look at the life of Jacob, you should be deeply encouraged. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 41, the very last verse of chapter 41, verse 57, and we'll carry right into chapter 42. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Chapter 42, verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming for the famine was severe, or the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Here's our principle for this first section. Our primary job description on earth is to be God's agents of reconciliation. Our primary job description on earth is to be God's agents of reconciliation. Remember the big picture that we're looking at here. God's eternal plan from Genesis was to save people from their sins by bringing a Messiah to planet Earth following Adam and Eve's sin. 
this Messiah was going to be born of a special group of people that were Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. So this was going to be, this Messiah was going to come from Jacob's family. Uh, this Messiah was going to be born about 2,000 years in the future. That's God's plan. God thinks eternally. Of course, Jacob doesn't necessarily know that. He knows that he's been promised that all the nations of the world will be blessed through his descendants. Now, in the near term, God's strategy is to get Jacob's family out of Canaan. Canaan is an extremely wicked place, and Jacob's family is already being spiritually compromised through their association with the wicked land of Canaan. So God's going to move Jacob's family into Egypt for 400 years so he can grow them from a family of 70 people into a nation of 2 million people. And then he's going to bring them back into the land of Canaan that he promised Abraham a couple centuries before. So God sends literally a regional famine over Canaan and this part of the Near East in order to get Jacob out of Canaan and into Egypt. That's the land that had the surplus grain for sale. And Jacob tells his sons, let's go to Egypt to buy food so we don't die here of starvation. The sons, it says, they just stare at each other. They're literally paralyzed. They don't want anything to do with Egypt. And you re recommend and remember that they had sold their brother to Egypt. So when dad says, let's go to Egypt to buy grain, they go, oh my gosh, that's where the brother is as a slave somewhere. We sold him there 22 years before. Jacob, interestingly enough, does not send Benjamin, the youngest son of Rachel, with the 10 brothers to Egypt because he says he's afraid something may happen to him. Now, what it doesn't say is that Jacob may have a strong suspicion that what happened to Joseph may have something to do with the fact that his other 10 sons hated him. So he, he doesn't quite know, but he's not going to take a chance that something may happen to Benjamin. So Rob's going to show you a map of this particular journey. This actually is just a very basic schematic. It kind of shows you the route that Jacob actually is going to take to move to Canaan with his whole family in about a year from now. You know, we don't know that yet, and of course he doesn't either. It's about a 250-mile journey from Hebron uh, through Beersheba to um, Memphis, Goshen. It's about 10 miles south of, of current-day Cairo. Uh, that's where Joseph was. Uh, actually, Jacob's family is going to move up to, to uh, Goshen, which is the, the delta. That The whole delta region is where all the grain is grown uh, for thousands of years. So they took a donkey caravan, Jacob's 10 sons. It's about a three-week trip. Yeah, I know it's a burrow. His name is Steve. <laughs> I knew as soon as I put donkey in the text, this was going to happen. I mean, it's not a problem, you know. So Jacob hasn't figured out that God wants him to move to Canaan yet, but they're going to go to, to Egypt to get food. And as the text suggests, apparently Joseph has taken personal control of all grain sales to foreigners. It's highly likely he had in infrastructure in place to sell grain to the native Egyptians. Now remember, our timeline here is the seven years of famine are, are the seven years of abundance are over. We're now in the first year of famine. So Joseph has opened the storehouses up and is selling grain both to Egyptian natives, but he's also selling grain to foreigners who are coming from foreign countries to Egypt because that's where the food is. So there's some fear here that foreign spies may try and enter the land under the guise of purchasing grain in order to spy out the land and maybe plan a future attack. 
So it's highly likely that foreigners, in order to buy grain, had to get a special permit. And that special permit came from Joseph himself. And so Joseph's sons, of course, who are from Canaan, would have to personally appear before Joseph. At any rate, we do know that God arranges a divine appointment between these ten brothers who sold him into slavery 21 years ago and Joseph, who's now the prime minister. And he instantly recognizes the brothers and they don't recognize him at all. It's been 21 years since they've last seen him and they probably haven't changed that much. They're still shepherds. They sold him into slavery when he was 17. 13 years as a slave in Potiphar's house, a few years in Potiphar's prison. He's now prime minister at age 30 years old. There's been seven years of abundance, right? Surplus crops, that would get Joseph 37. We're now the first year of famine. Joseph is probably 38 at this point. And his brothers, who were born around his time frame, are probably 38 to 45. They were all born in about seven years, all 12 of them, or all 11 of them, rather. Of course, there's four wives there, too, so that can easily happen. So they don't recognize him. They sold him when he was 21. He had a beard, and he was a shepherd boy then. Today, he's clean-shaven. The Egyptians didn't have beards except in mourning. He's dressed like royalty. I mean, he's got attendants. Uh, he um, speaks to them through an interpreter. So he's learned the Egyptian language, and he speaks Egyptian in front of them. They do not know that he can understand their Canaanite or their Hebrew dialect. He can, but he doesn't let them know that. He doesn't reveal his identity to them at that time. And they, they're speaking to someone, interestingly enough, who they think is dead. They think he's died. Right? They tell their dad that, and they now believe he's no longer living, and they're speaking to their brother, and they don't know, but he does. So in order to understand Joseph's behavior toward his brothers, we have to understand his motives, and we have to understand his goals. It seems pretty clear that Joseph must have known that God had planned for his brothers to come to Egypt to, for the famine. Because God had given Joseph some dreams. Remember, 21 years before, he'd had two sets of dreams at 17. One that all brothers would bow down before him, which is happening here. And even more so, the second dream was that his father, along with all the brothers, would bow down to him. Remember, at 17 years old, he told his family these dreams, and they said, like fun, we'll ever bow down to you. And here they are, faces on the ground at that point. So Joseph understands that God has put him in a position to do at least two things. One, feed people and prevent starvation. So there's a very practical, physical ministry of, of life here, literally life and death. Even more importantly, Joseph understands that God has entrusted him with his power in order to bring about the repentance and reconciliation inside his own family. If Joseph's brothers are not reconciled to Joseph and to their father before Jacob dies, when dad dies, the family's probably going to disintegrate. How many of you have known that to happen? You know, you've got mom and dad, the patriarch and matriarch of the family, and the kids really don't like each other, but they hang around because mom and dad are the, are the hub in the wheel, and the kids are all the spokes. You get the picture? And when mom and dad died... The kids really don't like each other, so they kind of disappear on each other. I talked to a guy who was almost 90 years old, and I was talking about his family. And he said, yeah, I got a sister in Dallas. I said, when's the last time you saw her? He says, about 25 years ago. And he said, that's been way too soon. I don't need to see her again ever. And I thought, okay, we've got some broken relationships here. 
and no desire for reconciliation at all. The truth of it is we live in a culture where you know a lot of people like that. I mean, there's a lot of unforgiveness. There's a lot of, of uh, bitterness and a lot of resentment. And this family is that picture. I mean, they don't trust each other. They've been lying to their dad for 22 years. They sold their brother into slavery. I mean, it's, it's, this family's a mess. But God has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this family is going to be the family through whom God's going to bless the entire world. And Joseph knows that because dad told him, Jacob told him that. So he knows that they need to be reconciled first to God and then to each other. By the way, trying to reconcile broken horizontal relationships between people is almost impossible, if not impossible, if you have a broken relationship with God first. We do not have the capacity to forgive without divine help because the reality is we are self-righteous, self-centered, and we're going to hold people accountable and make them pay for their sins. That's just human nature, right? It's sinful human nature. And then as Pastor Roger so eloquently stated, by the way, this morning's sermon stuck up scimitar right through my heart in terms of practical. That's a, one of the more practical sermons I've heard. It's absolutely wonderful. Go, make sure you go. So God has put Joseph here. His ostensible job description, if you look at his job description, you go, he's prime minister. He's supposed to prevent starvation. Now you have a physical job description too. They pay you to do something in the workplace. They may be wondering what they do pay you for, right? But they do pay you to do something. So that's the physical job, the earthly job. God's job for Joseph far exceeded simply feeding people. His job was to reconcile this family to God and to each other so that the Messiah could come through them 2,000 years later. So God's eternal purpose was on the line. Joseph is God's agent for reconciliation. And so are we. Right? Paul tells us in Corinthians, we're ambassadors for Christ. We carry God's message of reconciliation. That's the gospel. That's salvation. That's why the cross came. That God and humanity can have a relationship because the cross has dealt with our sin problem. So we carry God's message, like Joseph, of reconciliation to a lost and hurting world. So Joseph, we now know a little bit of his motive. He's going to implement a strategy. And this strategy is going to be a little strange to start with, but he's got two goals. He needs to diagnose the spiritual state of his brothers. Where are they? He hasn't seen them in 21, 22 years. And he also needs them to repent of their past sinful behaviors. So in order to find out their spiritual state, he really treats them pretty harshly. He accuses them of being spies four times. He says, you're lying to me, you're, you're spies, you come to, to seek out the undefended parts of this land, you're here on subterfuge. And they say, we're not spies, we're, we're, we're 12 sons of one man, and we're honest men. Now, that was a bit of a stretch, right? You've heard, you know, we've just come to buy food, you know. They'd massacred the entire village, the village of Shechem, killed all the males, captured all, of, all the women and children. That's probably not too honest. They sold this brother as a slave, and for the last 20 years, they've been lying to their father every day that, they, that he's dead. And they knew that, and they have seen their father suffer for 21 years and let him suffer. Honesty would be um, not quite a good description for them. So, Joseph puts them in prison for three days. All of them, all ten of them, locks them up. 
They confined him in a dry cistern, which they used to use kind of as prisons if they wanted to confine people because the walls were straight down and it was 20, 30 feet deep. You drop somebody in there by rope, they were as good as confined in a prison cell. They did that to him. So he puts them in Potiphar's prison where he had been and he puts them in custody. He wants them to experience what he experienced. Being locked up, he wants to give them some time to think about their behavior. And he gives them a test. He says, the test of whether you're honest men and not spies will be, I want you to bring your youngest brother back to Egypt. Next time you come back to buy grain, and he knew they had to come back to buy grain because he knew the family was going to last six more years, right? He knew he was going to see him again. Arnold Schwarzenegger says, I'll be back. Well, Joseph knew they had to come back because he had the food. So he says, next time you come back, you bring your youngest brother. Benjamin is Joseph's full brother, right? They're about 15, 16 years apart. Joseph's 38 now. Benjamin's probably 22, 23. He's at home with dad, and Joseph wants to see him. Because Joseph wants to know whether the brother's jealousy toward Benjamin has caused them to get rid of him like they got rid of him, like they got rid of Joseph. You wanted to kill me, then you decided to sell me into slavery. Your half-brother Benjamin, my full brother, is now dad's favorite because that's Rachel's youngest kid and Rachel was his favorite wife. Joseph says, I want to know that you haven't knocked off Benjamin. I need to see his face. He wants to know if there's been any change in the last 21 years. Verse 21. Brothers are talking to each other in Hebrew. Joseph can hear. And they say, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. They're talking about Joseph here. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come on us. So after he gets him out of prison, he tells him, you, you, you've got to bring your youngest brother back, etc. So they're talking with each other, and they're remembering when they sold Joseph into slavery. They threw him in the cistern, and they sat down and had lunch. And Joseph is in the cistern saying, please let me go. Don't sell me into slavery. Don't kill me. But he's pleading. And they're going, how's the pastrami? I mean, they're just cold, really cold. They hate him because dad made him his favorite. And it says... He pleaded with us, we wouldn't listen. Because we treated our brother this way, what goes around comes around, and now God has got a target on our chest. Here's the principle. Remorse is regret over the consequences of sin. Repentance is sorrow over sin itself. There is a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is regret over the consequences of sin, Repentance is sorrow over sin itself. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward God. So remorse is concern over how sin affects me, how the consequences. Repentance is concern over how my sin impacts God. There's very different focuses. If someone's remorseful over their sin, they're going, I got really bad consequences. I did a DUI and I'm not sorry I drank and drove. I'm sorry I got caught. By the way, I'm singing Master Corral, and last night, coming from home about 9.15, I'm driving north on um, Callaway, and they have a DUI checkpoint. And I'm, and I'm wearing a tux. So I drive up and pull the window down, and the cop looks at me, nice young man. He says, man, you're all spiffed up. He said, we're doing a DUI check. And I said, I'm, I'm glad you are. You know, It, it, it was interesting. Uh, nonetheless, 
people that drink and drive, uh, sooner or later, are asking for trouble because all sin always has consequences. And if you sin long enough, you're going to have a consequence. Matter of fact, you don't have to, you sin one time, there's going to be a consequence. Most of the time we don't see it, but there's always a consequence. So someone who's remorseful over sin, Ernie is our rock star here being a correctional police officer. Ernie, I bet, here's a lot of remorse over sin. I got busted, but I'm really innocent. That's sorrow over the consequences of getting caught. That's a different animal than what I did was wrong because it hurt the God I love. And this sin is desperately wrong. So there can be no forgiveness without repentance. But in order to receive God's treatment and cure and forgiveness, you have to agree with God's diagnosis. So these brothers now are confessing we're guilty. Confession means to say the same thing about your sin as God says about it. You don't whitewash it. You don't paint it over. You don't make it look good. You say, this is sin because God says it sins and I own it. So it's an acknowledgement of personal guilt before a holy God. Joseph wants his brothers to feel guilty so they can be re repent and be restored, right? Now, by the way, guilt is not a bad thing. Guilt is diagnostic. When you feel guilty, many times it's because you are guilty, right? That is a diagnostic feeling. When you feel that, you bring that before the Lord. Guilt's like a red light on the dashboard of your car. You know, when the red light on your dashboard of your car goes off, what's wrong? It tells you something's wrong. It tells you something needs attention. It tells you something needs fixing. And by the way, putting duct tape over that red light does not fix the problem with under the hood, right? But that's what many people do. That's what our culture does. I don't want to think about it. Don't talk about it. It's okay. We'll redefine it. It's not really sin. It's just a lifestyle choice. Whatever it happens to be, that doesn't fix the problem. So these brothers now, their conscience is starting to get pricked. They're starting to be aware that they've sinned. They've done wrong things. They confess that God's brought this evil on them in retribution for the evil they did to their brother. Joseph says, okay, I want you to go back home, carry grain back to Canaan, but you're not going to see my face if you don't bring your youngest brother back with you. In the meanwhile, he imprisons Simeon, number two son, as a hostage. Now, Jacob's oldest son is Reuben. Remember that Reuben was the one who told the brothers, don't kill him. This was 21 years ago. They were going to kill him. They, he just said, don't kill him. And then Judah says, why don't we sell him? So they did. So Joseph imprisons Simeon because he's the next oldest. We know that Simeon was very cruel. Simeon had been one of the ringleaders that murdered the entire village of Shechem. So he imprisons Simeon. He puts the money back in their sacks. So remember, they, they came in on donkeys and they put the grain in sacks. This was all probably wheat or corn that they were buying there at that point. And he puts the money back in the sacks on top that they'd come to pay the grain for, sends them back home. And they discover the money and they get scared because they say, we brought money to pay the guy. The money shows back up in our sacks. When we go back to buy more grain, he's going to accusing us of theft. So Joseph is kind of ratcheting up the pressure on them to deal with their guilt. And they whine and they say, God's against us, God's against us. What's interesting is God is actually bringing them to salvation. Their salvation is in Egypt. They don't see that. Many, many times we're in circumstances that we do not understand. How many of you, ever been in, how many of you are in circumstances you don't understand now? 
How many of you look back on circumstances 20 years ago with a little bit of insight? I kind of see what God was doing. The truth of it is, most of our circumstances, we will never fully understand this side of glory because we just have limited vision. We're, 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 we're time creatures. We live in space and time. And God has plans beyond space and time, and that's why we walk by faith. So they come back and they tell their father, Jacob, the whole tale. This guy was harsh, threw us in prison, told us that he couldn't see our face if we don't bring our youngest son, returned our money in our sack. And of course, Jacob just responds with great maturity. Verse 36. Jacob is a whiner, just in case you wondered. <clears throat> their father, Jacob, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Wham, 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 wham. That's actually in the text. Verse 38. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair and Sheol to sorrow. Sheol is the place of the dead, by the way, in the Old Testament. You're going to kill me. So Joseph is still playing the game of plum. P-L-O-M. Poor little old me. And you know people that are experts at that game. This self-pity is really pathetic. Jacob is self-centered, not God-centered, and he's 129 years old. Things do not necessarily improve with age. Yes? As we age, we should become more like Christ, not more selfish. And yet it's incredibly easy as we age to become selfish. You and I have to fight against selfishness as we age because it's very easy to say, I done paid my dues from now on. I'm going to do what I want to do. Really? That's why God puts you on the planet, so you can do what you want to do. I don't think so. It's been said that a crisis doesn't make a man. It only reveals what a man is made of. And what we're seeing about Jacob here is immaturity, unfortunately. So then Jacob blames his sons. He says, why did you tell the man that you had a younger brother? Why did you tell him you had an old father? Why did you tell him there were 12? And, of course, the brothers turn around and blame Joseph. Well, he asked us all these questions. We're just responding to the questions. Why are you blaming us? So this, have you ever known families where they, everybody blames everybody else? Ever seen a family like that? It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. That's this family. Jacob, unfortunately, is still playing favorites. I mean, big time. He says, my son. Who's he saying my son to? The other ten sons, my son, shall not go down with you. For his brother, right, is dead. And he alone is left. Now, you're the other ten brothers and you're listening to dad talk about Benjamin. And you're going, gag me, right? He's playing favorites and it's hugely damaging, hugely damaging. Matter of fact, you could make a case that like Abraham had begun to idolize Isaac, that's one of the reasons in Genesis 22 God says sacrifice him, Benjamin has now become Jacob's idol. He puts really Benjamin before God. This favoritism is what led to the brothers' jealousy in selling Joseph in the first place, and Jacob still hasn't figured it out. I mean, in this family... 
You didn't even have the right to earn the right to be dad's favorite son. The only way you got to be dad's favorite son is if he happened to be born from dad's favorite wife. You couldn't even do anything about it. As parents, it's extraordinarily important that we love our children equally and unconditionally, right? Playing favorites is just lethal. I know some of your children are easier to love than others. And I know in your family of origin, your parents might have said you weren't the easiest one to love either, right? Okay, that's just reality. But God doesn't play favorites, and we shouldn't play favorites, and this core issue has led to this family disintegration. Even worse, in some ways, Jacob's terror over losing his favorite son is leading him to deny reality. I mean, this guy is in denial. They're literally almost out of food, and he, doesn't, he still says, you're not taking Benjamin to Egypt. Not going to happen. The reality is if Benjamin doesn't go to Egypt, they're all going to starve to death, including Benjamin. Dad, get a clue, right? His fear has paralyzed his common sense. He's not trusting God, and he's fearful, terribly fearful. He doesn't believe that the same God that made the promises to him in Bethel is the same God who's controlling his circumstances. And I think we can fall into that trap as well. It's very easy for circumstances or our environment to control how we feel about things or think about things instead of what God says. And as we've mentioned, God has a plan and God is going to work through this dysfunctional family and broken people. Judah, interestingly enough, now emerges as the family's spiritual leader. Chapter 43, verse 4. Judah says to dad, if you send our brother with us, our brother, he doesn't say if you send your son, Judah's saying he's our brother. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. Verse 8, send the lad with me and we will go and that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. Verse 9, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. Jacob finally begins to see the light because hunger is a great way to bring you back to reality. Verse 13, take your brother also and arise and return to the man in Egypt. Verse 14, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you and your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Here's the principle. Since the God who loves us is the same God who controls everything, we should trust him with everything. The same God loves you unconditionally as the same God who controls everything in your life and everything in everyone's life around the world. Therefore, we should trust him with everything. And it's patently obvious that Jacob is not doing that. Clearly, Jacob's not doing that. Now, it's been probably a year since they've been in Egypt. They probably bought enough food back to last them about 12 months. So this is year two of the famine, right? The beginning part of year two of the famine. This is the first time Jacob has mentioned the name of God since he renewed his vow to God in Bethel 21 years earlier. 
Now, I'm not saying he hasn't talked about God, worshiped God, prayed to God, but there is no mention in Scripture of it until now. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, God is in control of everything. May he grant you compassion in the sight of this prime minister. It's interesting, God 20-some years before had renamed Jacob Israel. Jacob, of course, means heel catcher, conniver, supplanter, liar, deceiver. Israel means a prince who wrestles with God and men and prevails. So Jacob is the old lion, cheating, selfish con artist. Israel is the one who's walking with the Lord, who's a prince, a spiritual prince. Anytime Jacob behaves badly, God calls him Jacob, uses his old name. When he's behaving like God wants him to, he calls him Israel. Well, Jacob gets called Jacob a lot because a lot of times he falls back into behaving in his old fashion. When he's trusting God and living by faith, called him Israel. The last time God called him Israel was 22 years ago. At Bethel. Fascinating. What is striking here, and it's the real backstory of this whole narrative, is the growth of Judah as the family spiritual leader. Judah really steps up to the plate. He promises that he will take personal responsibility to bring Benjamin back from Egypt. One of the things you have to understand about this culture, this culture was very hierarchical. The oldest son was considered to be the surrogate father in the sense of, not taking the place of dad, but they were next in line. So they had the family responsibility and the family privilege and the family authority after dad. Well, Reuben's disqualified himself. He slept with his dad's concubine. That disqualified him. Simeon is in prison by Joseph. Levi and Simeon butchered the whole village of Shechem, so he's disqualified himself. Judas number four. Judah's next in line, and Judah steps up to the plate. He says, Dad, I will take personal responsibility to bring Benjamin back from Egypt. You can hold me accountable. So Judah's thinking about the family at large. He's not just thinking about himself. By the way, all leaders take responsibility for the whole group. That's the nature of leadership. Leaders take responsibility for the group they lead, not just themselves. Leaders, by definition, are selfless. And as parents, your job is to think about your children and what's best for them and think about your grandchildren and what's best for them and pray for your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren and your great-great-grade who are not yet born. That's your responsibility. You should be praying four or five generations in depth because they will be born if Jesus doesn't come back. They're going to need your prayer. They're not even born yet. Their parents may not be born yet. You pray anyway. Benjamin's about 23 years old at this point. So the 10 brothers come back to Egypt. Second trip. And Joseph sees that Benjamin is still alive and well. And so he arranges to have a noon meal with them. I mean, this is the prime minister, right? They're terrified. They're going, we're going to be imprisoned for theft because, remember, our money's in our sack and they try to explain to Joseph Stewart, they go, hey, you know, we really didn't steal this money. It, it, you know, we, we brought it back here. We're honest people at that point. And their steward says, the God of your fathers put the money in your sack. This is an Egyptian steward. He works for Joseph. 
it seems pretty clear that Joseph has been sharing his faith with this steward. Because the steward says, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, put your money in your sack. He says, by the way, your account's all paid up. You know why? Who paid for their grain? Joseph paid for their grain. That's love. Joseph's obviously been sharing his faith with his steward. So they have dinner with the prime minister. And I mean, this is a state dinner. This is a big deal, right? They're honored guests by the prime minister. By the way, the Egyptians have got to be looking at this with a little cross-eyed. Number one, they hated foreigners, all foreigners. They considered them inferior. Number two, they really hated shepherds. I mean, they're just dirty people. They stink like sheep. Have you ever been around a wet sheep? I mean, they are odiferous, shall we say. So they viewed them as like, who are these 10 or 11, you know, 11 brothers having a state dinner with the prime minister and they're shepherds? Yeah, they're homeless people, right? They're nomads. They, you know some people like that, like Pastor Roger was talking about this morning. So this is very honor. It's like having an unexpected lunch with the presidents. And, and the Egyptians did not share meals with foreigners. They basically, Joseph sat at a separate table by himself. By the way, is it hot in here? Yes. Can somebody can run something? I mean, I'm like, I know I generate hot air, but man, it's a lot of hot air. I see some of you on the nod, and I'm thinking, man, it's warm in here. Does somebody know how to run things? Anyway, break a window in the back or something. It's, it's amazing. <clears throat> So, so they have dinner, but they, they're seated at separate tables. Joseph sits by himself. He's the prime minister. The Egyptians sit in a separate seat by themselves. And the 11 brothers all seat at their own table. And they're all seated in rank order. Oldest to youngest. Boom, 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 boom. Simeon's been released from prison. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. I mean, he's got them seated in order. And the brothers are astonished. How does this ruler know who's oldest and who's youngest? I mean, I read a commentary said the mathematical odds of seating all 11 in order are just astronomical, impossible to happen by chance. So Joseph sends gifts to each one at the table. And he sends Benjamin five times as much as the other 10. Wonder why he would do that. He wants to find out if they're still jealous. He's going to show favoritism to Benjamin to find out if they're still jealous and if they react. How come he gets more than me? Just like your kids, right? How come he gets more than me? After dinner, chapter 44, verse 1. He commands his house steward saying, fill up the men's sack with food as much as they can carry. Load them up and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and put his money for the grain. And he, he did as Joseph told him. So Joseph's got one last test for these brothers. He's planted his own silver cup in Benjamin's sack. He's going to send him out of town and then he's going to go after him and accuse Benjamin of theft. He's going to find out what the brothers do. Their response to this accusation will tell them whether they've changed since they sold him as a slave or if they're going to cut and run. So in the morning, they all leave to go home. They've got their money. They've got the silver cup, etc. 
They're out of town. They're barely out of the city limits. And he sends his house steward after them. And he accuses them of stealing his master's cup. And the brothers are hot. And they deny it. And they say in chapter uh, 44, verse 9, With whomever of your servants the cup is found, let him die. You didn't ever want to say that. Just say it. And we also will be your Lord's slaves. So the steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. How does he know? And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. That's where it had been planted. Verse 13. Then the brothers tore their clothes, and when each man had loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. So they passed test one. They don't cut and run. I mean, they don't say, Benjamin, you're screwed, man. We're out of here. We're going back to dad in Canaan, right? Sorry. How could you steal this cup? They stay together as a family. This is a good sign. They're exhibiting some degree of loyalty toward each other, not like they did for Joseph. They come back to Joseph. He's still in the house. They fall down before him again. And he says, um, I'm only going to enslave the one in whose sack the cup is found. The rest of you can go back to your dad. I just want to enslave the guilty party. Who would that be? That would be Benjamin. Now, this scenario is an exact replay, same song, verse 2, of what they did to Joseph. Go back 22 years before, they're in Dothan, shepherding, right? Joseph shows up in the coat of many colors. They strip the cl his clothing off. They throw him in the well. They're going to start, first they're going to try and kill him. Then they throw him in the dry well. And ultimately, despite his pleas, they choose to sell him down to Egypt and probably an early death as a slave. Now Benjamin, Jacob's other favorite son, has been accused of theft. And the other ten sons are obviously innocent. I mean, none of them took the cup. How are they going to respond? Joseph wants to find out whether they will abandon Benjamin or if they're going to stand by him in his hour of needs. Joseph really wants to know if they've repented of selling him as a slave 22 years before. If they're going to be used by God to bring a Messiah in 2,000 years from now, they need to be righteous men. And these brothers, interestingly enough, have really seen both the kindness of Joseph and the severity of Joseph at the same time, and they don't even know he's their brother. He's thrown them in prison. He's confronted them. He's called them spies. I mean, he's been harsh, but he's also been very kind. He's returned the money in their sack. He's had them for dinner. So they're persuaded that he's not just a hard nose. He's, a, he's a, uh, also an honorable, kind man. Judah now steps up to the plate and gives probably one of the most beautiful petitions in all the Bible. When you read this, you can hardly not weep. He decides to confess the guilt of this family and plead for mercy. He doesn't make excuses. He accepts responsibility and he intercedes for the family at large. He asks Joseph to tell him the, to, for permission to tell the story from the beginning. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 18. Then Judah approached Joseph and said, O oh my Lord, may your servants speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servants for you are equal to God. Go to verse 25. He's telling the story now. 
He said, our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me and I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, Benjamin, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Judah says, now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, Jacob, and the lad, Benjamin, is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants, the ten of us, will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Verse 32. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant, me, Judah, remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go down with his brothers. Or how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with us, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Here's the principle. Genuine repentance submits to God's authority, admits to personal sin, and appeals to God's mercy. Genuine repentance submits to God's authority, admits to personal sin, and appeals to God's mercy. So Jacob is laying out the entire family history. By the way, Joseph knows all this. Judah doesn't know he's talking to his brother. He thinks he's talking to an Egyptian prime minister. So Judah lays out the family history, especially of their father's relationship with his youngest son, Benjamin. Judas tells this prime minister that if Benjamin does not come home with him, it will literally kill their father, Jacob, with grief. Judah says, I promised dad, I gave him my word, I became surety, I swore to him that I will bring him home safely. Judah says, I will take Benjamin's place as a slave to you for the rest of my life. If you will let Benjamin go home to be with his dad. Despite the dysfunctionality of this family and the jealousy, Judah loves his father, and Judah loves his brother, and he does not want to see dad's heartbreak over another son who is lost. He would rather be a slave in Egypt for the rest of his life, literally lay down his life, than go back home without Benjamin and see his dad die of grief. This is really the high point of this entire narrative. The real story in this story is not about Joseph. It's about Judah. If you go back to chapter 38, you see Judah behaving badly. I mean, he behaves just like the culture around him. Right after they sold Joseph into slavery 22 years before, it says Judah separated from the family. He went out and married a Canaanite woman, has three sons with this woman. Apparently, the two older boys are so evil, it says God took their lives. Obviously, that's pretty wicked. Judah promises that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who marries the first two, God kills both of them. He says, you can marry my third son in order to raise up the family line. Judah conveniently forgot about the promise. 
Tamar disguises herself as a temple prostitute and conceives a child with Joseph himself. Obviously, that's pretty sinful behavior. But Tamar is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew. Such is the grace of our God. When you think you've screwed up beyond repair and God can't use you, that is not true. We serve a God with inexhaustible mercy and he uses Judah and Tamar and Perez and Zerah, these two boys, the twin boys that were born from Judah and Tamar, in the lineage of Christ. And over the next three or four chapters from 38 to today, we see the gradual spiritual maturity of Judah as the leader in that family. He's gone from selling his own brother as a slave to offering to become a slave in the place of his brother who's obviously innocent. And he is innocent as well. So Judah is acting like Jesus Christ did for us, who, though innocent, laid down his life for our freedom. John 15, 13, Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is obviously our example and our model and our prototype that we should follow. Judah loves his father, loves his brothers, despite the past, so much he's willing to spend the rest of his life as a slave so that they can go home and have fellowship as a family. This is repentance, not just words. It's behavior. It is sorrow and repentance in action. You know, before this time, the brothers are regretful. Oh, sorry, we got busted. Sorry, the consequences. They now have repented, which means they see their sin like God sees it. And they've literally rejected it. And Judah's saying, I'm willing to become a slave to you out of love. Repentance means to change your attitudes and your actions about sin. It literally means to turn 180 gears around. And Judah's done that. He's the one who said, sell brother number one, Joseph. And now he says, I'll be a slave for brother number two in their place. That's a 180 degree turnaround. So Joseph's goal here was to reunite his family, first with God, then each other. And there can be no unity in your family or my family unless there's genuine reconciliation. And there can be no reconciliation without repentance. Many families will not experience unity because there's no reconciliation. There's no reconciliation because there's been no repentance. There's no repentance because no one's called sin, sin. And literally said, I have sinned and I'm seeking forgiveness and put it on the table. We hope that time will heal all wounds. Time does not heal all wounds. You can come back 25 years later and people go, I still remember what that blankety blank did to me and blah, 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 right? Time doesn't fix it. It has to be acknowledged, owned, and turned from, and there can be no forgiveness without repentance. Sorrow over sin has to grow into a hatred of sin. You cannot tolerate sin and repent of it. You have to hate it enough to turn around and leave it. Turn your back on it and desire to walk with God and walk away from sin. And by the way, none of us will reject sin without divine help. None of us will reject sin and turn to God without divine help. The good news is, you have divine help. Who lives in you? Has the Holy Spirit convicted you of sin in the last 24 hours? I mean, were you aware of it? I know he, he goes, you need to repent of that. Sometimes we listen to that little voice. Sometimes we just throw the hearing aid away, right? I'll deal with it later. You know what happens when you do that? It gets louder. 
and louder and louder until we repent. God wants to have an open door relationship with us. That's why he wants to cleanse us from sin. And that's why we have 1 John 1, 9, your spiritual bar of soap. If we confess, implication, repent of our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us. Now, this story's got a lot to teach us. This family's journey is our family. Like Judah, God is never finished with us. Never, regardless of our history. Like Joseph, God desires reconciliation with his family and that requires repentance. Because we're all sinners who break God's covenant every day. And yet the God we serve is a God of inexhaustible mercy who continually loves us and wants a relationship with us. You all know the parable of the prodigal son? Who's the father? Our father, our spiritual father, Almighty God. He longs for his rebellious children to come back home. Our sin separates us from God. The penalty of our sin has already been paid for. We can be reconciled to God, not by what we do, but simply by trusting in what Jesus already did. And of course, we call that salvation, right? Through faith, by grace. Here's the issue for you and I. Most of us in this room already know Jesus as our Savior. We don't just get saved by faith. We live by faith every day. Because every time we sin, what happens to our intimacy with God? It gets separated. We begin separated. When your children sin against you, they're still your children. But it blocks intimacy. And when there's forgiveness and repentance, that intimacy comes back. Which means every single day, you and I need to turn away from sin. When the Holy Spirit goes, you need to confess to that. That's, that's the red light on the dashboard. That's guilt. That's a call to repentance. That's a call to say, Lord, I, I call this what you call it. It's sin. I ask you to cleanse me. I want to be right with you. Our Father longs for a deeper relationship with us every day. And God will arrange your circumstances to bring you to the point of repentance. Joseph was used by God to arrange this whole sequence of circumstances to what? Bring the brothers to repentance before God and before each other. Next week, Lord willing, in chapter 45, we're going to see forgiveness and reunification and you get all this wonderful stuff. Well, you don't get that wonderful stuff without the legwork that goes into chapter 42 and 44. Make sense? All right. Let me summarize and then I'll ask Tom to come up and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one. No matter how you get paid or what your physical job description is, your primary job description on planet Earth is to be God's agents for reconciliation. Number two, remorse is regret over the consequences of sin. Even the world is sorry they got busted. Repentance is sorrow over sin itself. Repentance sees sin from God's point of view. It's turning away from sin and turning towards God. Number three, since the God who loves us is the same God who's in control of everything, we should trust him with everything, right? Number four, genuine repentance submits to God's authority. He's in charge. I'm not. What he says goes. Admits to personal sin. Doesn't whitewash it. Just says, I agree with what God says about it. And appeals to God's mercy for forgiveness. Okay. Read ahead if you'd be so kind. We're going to try and finish the book up next week. Most of our time will be in 45 and 46. We may dip a bit into 49 as well. And then we've got the uh, Gospel of Mark on the 
the quarter lease here for that read ahead. When you get into Mark, be prepared to move very quickly. Mark is actually written by Mark, but it's Peter's gospel. He got most of his information from Peter. And as you know, Peter was a very direct person. And Mark reads like a movie script. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. So we're going to be moving really, really quickly through that. Okay? I love you guys. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.